Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show educator and chief executive officer of ABI Wellness, Mark Watson. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his learning difficulties as a child, his journey into education, his transition into the world of neuroscience, neuroplasticity, cognitive rehabilitation, traumatic brain injuries, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mark Watson. Enjoy. Well, Mark, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love the work you're doing. It's really important. I have friends in this community, and I love that you're just uh, spreading the word and, and raising awareness. I love your mission, your vision. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it still, your purpose. Uh, it aligned with mine, uh, and uh, mine's not quite as extreme, uh, but you know I absolutely love it. So anything I can do to help, I'm here for you. Well, and I'm very grateful. I was a guest on your podcast, Brain Mastery, so we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to thank you for that invitation as well. It was a great conversation. No, it's wonderful. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I am in... Surrey, British Columbia, a suburb of beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Brilliant. Well, I would have to start at the very beginning of your story. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. I'm so lucky. You know, I, I was born right here in British Columbia, in Vancouver, um, raised by two my heroes, my mom and dad, uh, unbelievable people. Um, diagnosed with, I had some complications early on in my life. So diagnosed with dyslexia early on in grade one. Um, what that looked like for me was, you know, a lot of anxiety and worries growing up, but I had the amazing parents that provided me with the opportunities educationally to help me to learn how to succeed. And, uh, they, they provide me with a ton of love, but also gave me the opportunity of a challenge too. They didn't make it easy. Uh, they, they encouraged me as, as I, as I pursued different interests and were always there for me. So mom was a classic, you know, um, uh, protector and dad was an encourager. So just, I was the luckiest guy ever. And what about professions? What were they doing? So my dad was a, in telecommunications. So he worked with the phone company, um, and had kind of like a, an engineering background. And my mom was at home with us um until our early teens and then went into working in in the retail world in the fashion world and then ultimately was really inspiring ended up working in special education um following her true passion uh because both of her boys had this dyslexia and she wanted to be a part of that change in the world so it's pretty pretty awesome 
So when you look back now, what were some of the challenges learning-wise? And also, did you feel any kind of uh, elements of bullying as you were progressing through your school ages? Great question. Um, so for me, the, the learning was uh, graphomotor, so dysgraphia, so written output disorder. Uh, early on, I didn't want to know what that what that meant, actually. I was quite uh, um, stubborn about that, and I wasn't willing to open up about that at all with anyone. So I was a bigger kid in school, uh, So, uh, and I was slightly older than a lot of the kids because I, I was held back half a year between uh, moving schools from Ottawa back to Vancouver. I wasn't really bullied because I was so big, <laughs> um, and I was pretty quiet. Uh, so because I was insecure, right? And quite anxious about my learning. And I didn't want to really, I just tried to fit in, which didn't work because I was too big. Um, but but what I did witness, and I've always been kind of this sort of a person was I I always had a relatively, I didn't know what that meant at that time, but I always had a really relatively high EQ. And I did notice a lot of other kids that were in sort of uh, outlier situations or learn differently being bullied. And that upset me uh, deeply. And it was something ethically that really concerned me. Uh, you know, I saw people, one of the women, girls who went to a school that I went to in Ottawa had a pretty severe seizure disorder and she would be made fun of by the kids uh, all the time. And I would see kids who were in difficult family dynamics. Um, this was when I was in high school and a captain of the football team getting bullied who had clearly some of, you know, what, what appeared to be some level of abuse issues at home and was being made fun of uh, by, you know, friends of mine uh, and I and I had to courageously challenge them at times and that was hard because it was almost like the reverse having the courage to do something like that I like to think that I'll show up when when times are hard like that but uh, but in that one particular many times I didn't <laughs> uh, but in that one I I did so typically I wasn't bullied um, school was you know I liked going I, I liked working hard but I, I found it very challenging early on very very hard uh, but I just kept kind of kept hammering through it as much as I could and um, not wanting to understand what my learning weaknesses really were. I just wanted to kind of blinders on and just keep moving, which is not a good strategy, folks. I'm not suggesting that, <laughs> but that was my path early on until I found sports and, and I found that I had a, an island of competence there um, and, uh, and really kind of went into that and, and built a lot of self-esteem uh, from sports. The phrase that you used, um, grapple... Oh, dysgraphia. 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 A motor output, written output. So am I? is it fair to say that most physicians in the world have that because they've got fucking awful handwriting? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, but you have to get a physician to diagnose it for you. Um, it, 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 yeah, it would appear as though. Uh, that 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 would be the case. Uh, but I, again, with the EMR now, everything's digital, so they'll they'll, they'll spit it out to you. There's there's, there's less handwritten doctor's notes. <laughs> I saw it was like a meme, and it was um, a bunch of doctors protesting, and it said these are our demands, and then it just had a bunch of handwriting. <laughs> no one could understand what it was saying. <laughs> so yeah, when I was young, I was told I was probably going to be a doctor because my handwriting was so bad. So there's probably an element of that in mind too. But I think it was more impatience, just wanting to get to the end of the sentence. But Fair enough. With Fair enough. going back to that bullying for a second, just because I think this is an important principle for all human beings. We have on occasion, and sadly it's painted like this is everyone, and it's not, but we have times where a child is getting beaten up or picked on or whatever, and everyone's got their phones out. 
And I've always told my little boy, don't just wait in there and be a lone hero. Turn around to everyone else and say, look, are we just going to all stand here? Or are we going to stop this? Because this is the problem, I think, is a lot of people, they kind of have that herd mentality. And it's not, I don't mean that to be patronizing. It just is a human condition. And so if you can actually stand up and turn to the group and lead them, say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is wrong. We're going to stop it. You can cause a shift sometimes. What was what was your experience when you did stand up that time? Were you able to, to turn your friends from the way they were to, to change their behavior? Interesting. Good question. This, this sits beside my desk every day. Physician writing, right? <laughs> um, you know, from Marcel Goldsmith, a real leader, writer, interesting guy. And I heard him speak. And uh, he said, I only have one note on my desk, as I recalled it. And it said, did I do what I thought was right? And did I do my best? And in that moment, um, I didn't think about anything. I just acted. And I think more people need to do that sometimes. I tend to get caught in my own head in that kind of left prefrontal cortex where you're analyzing and analyzing and analyzing, and that's paralysis by analysis. And sometimes you just need to go do it. And all I could think of was this poor kid who is much smaller, who is not a part of that same social circle, was getting bullied, and it was wrong. So all I did was I just went in. I just went. I didn't think about it. Had I thought about it, I wouldn't have done it because those were my seemingly friends. So I just went and did it. And in doing it, um, I learned I learned a ton. In doing it, the other guys, some of the, these weren't close friends, but these are associates. And they're like, oh, come on, man. What? what come on, Watson. Oh, white knight guy. Oh, big tough guy. Oh. Whatever. He's not even worth it. And I just looked at, you want to bully someone? Bully me. I'm right here. And in that moment, I wasn't thinking. I was, I was just doing. And then I took him. Walked down to the to one of the teachers, walked through it. And at that point, I really didn't care. Because in that moment, I realized for the for one of the first times in my life, um, if they weren't okay with what I did, I don't want to be associated with these guys anyways. And then after the fact, they, they came up to me, hey, Watts, appreciate it, man. That, you know, I, I was I'm having a bad day. And, you know, he's an easy target. And, and we're all humans. We all make mistakes all the time. I make them all the time. Um, and especially, you know, sometimes uh, us boys, when we're young, right, the prefrontal cortex is not developed till we're 24, 25, <laughs> or some maybe even later. Uh, so we need to understand and recognize that and have um, a bit of compassion around that, too. Uh, you know, I'm raising two boys myself with my amazing wife. Well, she's doing a better job than me. But uh, and, you know, I've got 16 and 14 at home. So I think that I think that in that moment, to answer your question, I wasn't thinking I was doing and I think sometimes that's the right thing. As long as the only thing that I would I would want to be clear on is you need to know what's inside of you first. What do you stand for? What are your values? Do that internal work. And if you know what that is, then you know your North Star, then your actions um, can be uh, clearer as long as you understand what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the big thing. A lot of people listen to this podcast have the qualities to be a leader in their community. I mean, they're wearing a uniform, you know, whether it's military or police or fire or EMS. And yet that paralysis by analysis, that worst case scenario, oh, this one time someone intervened and this is what happened. Yeah, but I mean, there's a thousand other times where people intervened and they just helped the person, you know? So I think by standing up and saying this is wrong is something that we need a lot more of. You know, there's there's bullying all the way from you know, schools through to the White House and everywhere in between. I think we need to refine that kind of 
good Samaritan shepherd element within, you know, not only our homes, but our communities and then ultimately our countries. A hundred percent. I think we need to honor it. I think we need to, I, th- I think we need to celebrate it. You know, the first responder, I hear some people, I'm very quick to correct them now. I'm, I'm less, I, if, if you talk to people, I'm, I'm rather politically correct, but I'm working towards uh, changing that a little bit and doing more of what I say I want to try to do, which is doing the right thing. You know, you, you look at what our first responder has to do. They're going in blind to, a, to the worst day of someone's life. And they're going in blind. <laughs> they're speeding down the highway and some someone in traffic isn't going to move over because they want to get to the red light faster. Give your head a shake. You know, these people are on all the time. So what I'd like to see is a world where that is valued at a higher level. These public servants are valued at a higher level because for them, their norm, when I, when I think about those first responders, when I think about a personal experience related to someone who's, in a similar kind of service type work that has to deal with a ton of trauma, people who are, who work in a palliative care ward, a family just lost a loved one, but for them, it was just Tuesday afternoon shift. So what do we do about that? As, as concerned citizens, I want that first responder. I want that allied health professional. I want that nurse. I want that person that's exposed to that high degree of trauma to be their best self for when we, when it's our turn. Now, how do we do that? Well, what we do is we raise awareness about that. We raise awareness about what you and I were talking about before, about this remarkable opportunity for the brain to change itself and to improve itself. It's not easy, though, right? <laughs> it's a hardwired thing, and that takes work. Uh, but our and our neurophysiology is, is, har- is hardwired more towards the negativity, right? For good reasons. But the work of Dr. Rick Hansen, I think I may have mentioned him before, he talks about hardwiring happiness, neurophysiology, like the, the brain can change through focused, repetitive work. One of my mentors, Barbara Aerosmith Young, remarkable human, I'm very biased, but remarkable human being has, has created some groundbreaking work that's been studied by Dr. Norman Doidge, who's like one of the leaders in the world in neuroplasticity. Everybody's brain can change. For, now that's not a positive thing. It's it's for the negative too, <laughs> it, you know. But it's just a reality that the brain can change, and it's not that it can only change early on. It can change throughout a lifetime, and I think that's a super hopeful statement. So when we think about this in context with our first responders and the community supporting the first responders, our belief, our our biases, those can change through education, like you do every day. Uh, with with your cause, um, but also through treatment protocols, um, through training protocols, just like we train the body, we can also train the brain. And and remember, like, I think there's a really good Thomas Edison quote. I just heard it from my friend, Jim. We were just talking about him. And I, th- I think that, the, the, as I recall it, Thomas Edison, he said, the purpose of the body is to carry the brain around. I love that. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it really does. And you see some of the... the uh... What was it called? Mega Mind, I think. His assistant in that is literally this robot that carries this little uh, talking fish head, you know. And it's like, yeah, that's us. Everything that you know that we are made of is designed to protect that little tiny sphere on the top of our shoulders. One hundred percent. So I want to see a world. I have friends in the first responder world who have told me about the shift work and the sleep. That's not good. But how do how, how do we find better uh, behavioral protocols? 
to support them. The science is out there. You know, uh, I think Matt Walker wrote a really cool book about it, about sleep. And, you know, one of my friends, Pat Byrne, uh, wrote a very good book called Inconvenient Sleep with his daughter. Very good book uh, that people should be reading because um, sleep is very important. And, and, and the other big thing here is that none of us are perfect. We're going to likely make mistakes. So re hit refresh and, and keep moving forward and know that there's a hope for that brain change. It can happen. We see it in other fields all the time. You know, it's a great book by Malcolm Gladwell. Many of them are good. And it's not just because he's Canadian, okay? I'm not saying it's just because he's Canadian. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a book, uh, uh, David and Goliath, that he wrote. That's very fascinating uh, when we look at kind of moving the standard of care in, in health and wellness. And he talks about the advent of... Um, of cancer treatment and, and chemotherapy it's a it's a it's an awful but also hopeful story it's both and that, that's what makes it compelling is that when they were talking about that problem when we think about first responder health when we think about mental health when we think about brain health it's a very general concept um it's it's sometimes don't beat me up too much it's sometimes not as action focused as perhaps maybe it, it should be to have the impact. So it always has to start with education. But what Gladwell did a really good job of, and I didn't know this story of, of, of chemotherapy and where it came from. Are you aware of this story? No, I'm not. Okay. So it's an interesting story. Um, and, and maybe we have to fact check it after. I, I, but I choose to believe Malcolm Gladwell did his homework. But my understanding of it was uh, the prognosis for, for young kids with leukemia was very, very poor. And they, these kids were bleeding out very quickly. So they, he brought in one of the kind of top people um, in the hematology world, which is a, a blood doctor, right? Uh, and then, uh, so he was uh, one of the top in, in America. And then he brought in kind of a data analysis type person. They're kind of looking at the numbers saying, well, these kids are going to die anyways. Like, well, we need to try to do something. And they're, the, the, the prognosis was terrible. So then they started to look at different drugs and combining them, right? For different purposes and different reasons. And and what ended up happening is they messed up. <laughs> Some died faster and died very graphically, uh, but they kept learning and they kept trying to understand because the prognosis again was very poor at the at the front. But what ended up happening is they started to figure it out. Right, they started to figure it out. They were asking the right questions and research. Well, how do we extend the life of this child? How do we stop the rapid growth of these two of these these abnormal cells, which is all cancer is, right? Those are abnormal, uh, rapidly dividing uh, uh, cells that that the white blood cells can't keep in front of, so they 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 break through. So they found a way. These smart smart scientists found a way to 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 bring in this, you know, in essence, really poison to kill the, the the rapidly dividing cells and 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 then to also work to keep the child alive long enough it took that equation and that understanding to ultimately move away from because initially of course when the when the child when the children died faster everybody's like you're terrible look what you're doing they're dying faster and and these objective sort of scientists are like yes but they were already like that was the prognosis these are the stats it was already going to happen but we're trying to find a way to help them live but they had to walk through that ultra painful step first. Nothing worse than that. A child, oh my God, right? But like, but they found a way. And that's part of the innovation that I think is, is hopeful for the future. Because chemotherapy is now really interesting, starting to go away. Now we're looking at more natural immunotherapy. And I think that's really exciting. Because it's not good to have that many toxins in you. That's a very bad thing. That's very, very bad. I never understood. I mean, I, the origin story is interesting, but to me as a very kind of white belt medic, 
to Agent Orange the whole body and then fingers crossed to see if it comes back again. As amazing as some areas of science that we have, that seemed like a, a, a Hail Mary at best, you know, and now we're seeing a big, big shift into creating a healthier body. How can we affect all of these these pillars of health and get as close to homeostasis and trust the body in its own innate properties to be able to heal? 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, you know, so uh, that, that's why we just have to keep moving forward and keep asking, the, keep asking questions and ask ourselves, are we asking the right question related to the problem that we're trying to address? And, and you know, what one of the areas that I did want to touch on today with your audience is when we think about our first responders and we think about mental health, I also want us to think about brain health. I, I, I don't want us just to think about mental health because for some people, uh, talk-based therapy may be the solution that will help. Um, for other people, maybe some uh, element of biofeedback could really help. Um, for, for some people, maybe there is, you know, an independent sort of neurotransmitter type mental health issue that requires some level of medication. Wonderful. Uh, but remember, like, the brain, what I said is, is true. The brain has remarkable capacity for change. So let's try to, as much as can, we can, use that for good, use that opportunity for good so that people ultimately behaviorally can do as much as they can to exhaust that potential. Absolutely. Well, you touched on playing football in school. Now we're going to get into neuroscience and brain health. With this lens that you have now in 2023, what is your perspective on impact sports in our youth and you know maybe um, removing some of the contact until they're at least you know of the college age uh well i think uh there's a good someone that you should have on if you haven't yet is uh, chris nowinski who runs the concussion legacy foundation there in florida um he's one of the people who worked alongside or followed the work of dr uh amalu and Dr. Anne McKee um, it, at Boston University, and um, Amalu was was at another location when it started. But what he's uh, advocating is that for tackle football to only begin at age fourteen, and and I think I think it just it just doesn't make sense. Um, the, our our brain is not designed to be hit like that. And I was terrible as a football player. I used my head frequently. Um, I. I realized after the fact, part of the reason why I love football so much is the teamwork of it. <laughs> it was great. But I think that, you know, one of the great sort of scientists who I had some a pleasure to spend a little bit of time with, Dr. Nazneen Virgie Babel, out of the Faculty of Medicine at University of British Columbia, she studies concussion. And one of the first slides she pulls up is uh, sort of the neurophysiology of a woodpecker. <laughs> and the woodpecker has a neurophysiology that's designed to protect the prefrontal cortex. Uh, the tongue kind of wraps around and protects the front of the brain. Uh, we don't have that function. <laughs> so I, I, you know, my thought on that is, um, limit any, any sort of that, uh, that trauma. Uh, when I see the UFC stuff, I get it. It's exciting. I understand it's very primal. Um, but also these are repetitive head injuries. Uh, and I've seen the other side of that and it's not good. Um, the brain, you know, uh, you know, when people talk about a better helmet, um, I want to see the data on how that's reducing the, the shearing of the neurons inside of the brain. When that happens, that changes behavior. I, I you, you liken it to the egg, right? So if we could, if we could stop the cracks on the outside of the shell, that does not mean that the inside is not getting damaged. Yeah. Cause we have the, the whole coup contra coup, which it doesn't matter, you know, what you're wearing. In fact, if 
correct me if I'm wrong, in the, I believe it was the boxing world, there was a push to uh, a, a larger head protector and then they were realizing that added mass on the brain was causing more trauma, not less. Good intentions, right? Uh, but as an optics, uh, you know, I, I remember having the opportunity, I won't name the company, but I had the opportunity to speak about some research that we were doing with a mentor of mine, uh, Howard Eaton, who's a real leader in sort of educational and neurological assessment. And we went and met with this, this, this group. And um, we were talking about people with brain injury doing cognitive rehab. And they were like, well, people with long-term brain injury, they have problems with attention, memory, planning, and organizing. And they kind of looked at me saying, those are called executive functions and, and, and higher order cognitive function. I'm like, yeah, I know. But um, if they have those challenges, then what do we do about it? Right. And, and they, they were involved with some studies uh, with a, we were talking about the football lens at that time and people that may suffer after a career in football, they were talking about this new helmet that was going to seemingly uh, reduce concussions. And I was like, that's really interesting. And it may really help with reducing skull fractures and that sort of uh, damage, but it's, it's great marketing, right? Uh, and it looks cool. It looks different. So when you see it on TV on Sundays, it's, oh, different looking helmet. That must be the concussion helmet. Um, but, you know, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world. You've already figured that out. But like what I do know is that um, but repetitive uh, brain trauma is a bad thing. And not following concussion type protocols is a bad thing. And I'll tell you, they're not followed well. All you have to all you have to do is watch what happened with the Dolphins this year. All you have to do is go to a kid's football game on the weekend somewhere and ask who who's trained and certified uh, to watch this. And and I think organizations are doing a better job. I think they're really working at it. Um, but I, I think the same is probably also true in the first responder community. I think it could be taboo to say that, you know, if I even if I fell on a call or if uh, if I got you know, uh, if, if a certain trauma got to me, uh, to be able to communicate that requires an openness in the culture to be able to uh, disclose that. And, uh, and I think there's a little, you know, way more than me. And I know this is a big part of your mission and vision is we need to work together to change that culture. I agree 100%. Well, I'm, I want to get into you know your journey into neuroscience. But before we do, I know there's a big large of education first. So when you were in school, at the high school level, what were you dreaming of becoming? And then walk me through your first kind of career that you found yourself in. <laughs> okay, so um, football, obviously, uh, football star. Um, uh, but underneath that was really, um, I was thinking about, uh, I like the idea of collegiate athletics. So I, I had it pretty narrow, pretty narrowed down. I was pretty specific. I wanted to be an athletic director at a small American private university because I thought I'd have the agency to make some decisions and ultimately do right by the players and, and by, this, by the staff. But I didn't think I could do it because I still didn't know that I could graduate high school. I, I, I really, I, I, I knew I was decent enough at football to help that, to help me have the courage to continue in high school and, and to go forward. Had I not gone to the amazing uh, school I did with the teachers I had, I wouldn't have done it. And I didn't have the parents I had, I, it probably wouldn't happen. So, um, so that was the idea was to, was to do that. It, it was the fallback, the fallback plan uh, was I was pretty strong so I could lift boxes. I knew that, that possibly if needed, I could work in warehousing. Um, and I was willing to work hard. That was something I did know about myself. Like I was a gamer. So I, I got to school early every day. 
I was on time. I never, I rarely ever missed a class. Um, you know, so that was the goal. And then uh, ended up graduating, uh, actually doing pretty well towards the end. I started to learn. I had some really great teachers who challenged me. You know, I had one teacher, Miss Field. Shout out, Miss Field, great teacher. Um, she was one of the first people to look at me and say, actually, Mark, your thoughts are pretty good. Um, you know, you, yeah, your written output's not very good, but when you express it verbally, you're very good. And I never realized that. I didn't know I could speak. I was super quiet. I just wanted to stay in my lane, hope nobody figured out I was dyslexic. <laughs> you know, like this, oh God, like if somebody sees me spell a word wrong, the world's going to end, right? No one cared. Uh, but, you know, in my mind, I had this narrative that it was such a such a challenge and such a problem, such a weakness, right? Uh, but then ended up getting some some soft recruiting for football and then ended up going off to University of Alberta. So you played for Alberta? Yeah, I played for University of Alberta. Okay. Yeah. So then did you continue after that or was that the end of your football journey? That was the end. The last time I played football was on what they called a third degree concussion. Uh, so what had happened uh, before that, I had suffered two that I could really say were real concussions. And after this one, they took my helmet away. The, thank goodness for the trainer. Trina was her name. Amazing person. Uh, football never panned out the way that I had envisioned it. It never panned out. And uh, multiple injuries, uh, um, trouble with schoolwork and everything, trouble with identity, right? Who am I if I don't have football? Oh, God, I'm no Like, what am I then? Uh, when in reality, it was... I was always interested in psychology. I was always interested in all these other things. I just, I, I was afraid to name it, right? Because uh, what would my friends say? And in a lot of those kind of cultures, there's a assimilation, right? Everybody's got to look the same, do the same, you know. So I played there the last time I ever played. I had this concussion. They took my helmet away, and they just gave me drugs and rest. And that that was that was the idea, which is again the best they had because you, I came to learn later they're looking for a bleed, right? So you, you got to rest if there's if there's a bleed, and the MRIs are expensive to run. So you know you just wait those 24 hours and then see. So the conversation has come up a lot the last few years with people that were high-level athletes, with people that have been in the coaching world, some very very experienced coaches. It's interesting now when we look at youth athletics through a 2023 lens that the lines between performance and wellness were blurred a lot of times so you had concussions in games you had you know baseball players throwing thousands of pitches until their arm fell off you know you had children encouraged to eat so they would be this brick wall of a linebacker rather than thinking about obesity when they left you have as, as what i've talked about a lot when i came here from england Uncle Rico's left, right, and center talking about how they should have been in the NFL, but, you know, I blew out my knee, I blew out my shoulder, I blew out this. And it really made me think, you know, games, sports are so much fun, but what we've done in the US has created such a high level of performance, but a lot of times it's um, the cost is the wellness of that child who then goes from extreme, you know, athleticism to more often than not, you know, obesity and inactivity. So, um, you know, what has been your perception being involved in that world on that line between performance and actually the, the well-being of the child or the young athlete? Great question. I love this question. Uh, so great. Again, I like books. You're starting to learn a little bit about me. David Epstein wrote a great book called Range. Okay. And this book is about the generalists. And I think, I think being too specific too early in your sport um, is problematic. 
Because what are we trying to accomplish here? And in Canada, every kid that plays hockey is surely going to be the next Wayne Gretzky. That's kind of what happens. And then, and then the parents in some cases go a little spun out crazy. I, you know, they, I get it um, because we're excited about our kid. Uh, but I think it's really important. What is the goal of sport, right? The goal, sport should be a conduit for building a better community. So, you know, build relationships, learn how to work together, uh, learn how to move a little bit more, uh, learn how to accomplish a shared goal, uh, you know, uh, learn how to lose, <laughs> right? Learn how to t- take it on the chin and learn from it, you know, um, learn about culture, right? Uh, you, you know, sports, what a beautiful opportunity to learn so many life lessons for kids a little bit earlier on so that when you go to that next big business meeting and you and you don't you, you, you don't accomplish what you wanted to, you understand, okay, yeah, right. That was like that game when we lost. And then we, we came up with a different game plan next time. And we put another person in a different position and we move forward. But if you don't get that opportunity early on, I worry for people. It doesn't need to be just sport. It could be music. Uh, it could be arts or drama. It could be anything. Uh, but learn how to work together. It could be individual. It could be swimming. Look at the work ethic that's involved in getting up at four and working on your very specific stroke. But don't only focus just on the the task at hand, understand, and this comes to the parents, understand underneath that is actually the generalization of that to your personal quality of life and activities of daily living. That's how I look at it. Yeah, well, thank you. I think it's an important thing because, you know, sports are supposed to be fun. And like you said, I mean, all those things that you pulled out, these are the takeaways, you know. Um, and you know, and the suffering and the, the the fitness and being out in the hot and being out in the cold. These are the you know the the discomforts that are so important. But contrary to that, how many kids spend game upon game on a bench because they aren't going to quote unquote win the game? Well, the point is that these children are supposed to be playing the sport, you know. And I get the competitive side, and I get the you know the the desire for a school or a college to win you know whatever championship it is. But if you've started to lose the fact that these children came because they want to play this sport and through this kind of distorted perception of winning is the the gold standard, to me, you've kind of missed the whole point of sports in the first place. 100%. 100%. And I think that's education. I think we need to lead with that in a lot of um, sport situations. And I'm actually seeing it change here. Like I see a lot of this change. I, you know, I, it's pretty awesome to witness because I didn't know that I would see that change in my lifetime. And in reality, I was a really competitive guy. So I wanted to win. You know, there was many car rides home after a basketball game where I wouldn't talk to anyone. <laughs> you know, like, like I was just built that way. But now I, I can see a different perspective. And again, neuroplasticity, my brain can change the way I look and perceive those things, which is a good thing. Thank God it did. <laughs> <laughs> so your fitness, your football career stops you know at obviously due to someone who was you know um forward thinking when it came to brain brain health walk me through the career path you took after that (laughs) that's interesting so i mean use that term very loosely football never really worked out at all in university for me it was injury after injury it was just it was it didn't end up happening it was weird uh and i I really struggled with it kept coming back and like at what point do we just say no and then that concussion was the perfect opportunity to say you know what? I don't think this is for me. Then what happened? I went in. Here's picture this. Rural country, Alberta, northern Alberta. One of the former players at U of A invites me to go and coach and uh, volunteer coach. So I'm like, I can't coach. I've never coached kids. Um, so I have this ragtag group of kids in our Drossen, Alberta. 
And uh, I, I'm tasked with becoming the offensive line coach for this team. Found myself, you know, driving between Edmonton and Ardrossan every day and just loving it. And then uh, working a part-time job at night and going to school. I just love working with these kids and seeing them develop. And I was like, oh, that's it. I love seeing people develop themselves. I love putting together a little bit of a plan. I love empowering them and I love seeing them work together. That's it. So then from there, I, I coached. These kids were amazing. The parents were unreal. Um, turned out I was okay, pretty good at it. And then uh, went on to doing a little bit of coaching after I finished uh, school. Then did a, a sports marketing um, placement with the Vancouver Canucks um, and uh, learned that sports marketing probably wasn't going to be the career I wanted to do. Didn't quite scratch that itch, but it was super interesting. And then ended up working uh, through some connections with my dad for the phone company for a bit. Learned that that probably wasn't the environment for me yet. <laughs> or maybe maybe it will be one day. I don't think it is, though. And then uh, ended up uh, working in special education with a mentor of mine, Howard Eaton, and another mentor of mine, Leslie Cool. Uh, working to implement uh, programs across the United States and Canada that helps kids. So this is grade one, Mark speaking, uh, to better understand how they learn in their own way and discover it and walk through it themselves. I thought that was a beautiful gift to the world. So that was a lot of fun. And then got exposed to the work of Barbara Aerosmith Young through Howard Eaton. Uh, and this woman was somehow saying that the brain could change. And surely she's wrong because... The brain is clearly hardwired like a computer. And if you're a visual learner, just learn visually, right? And if you're, you know, if you have dysgraphia, just accept it and use a typewriter. Well, no, this this woman was 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 thinking differently. She was thinking that the brain could change. She knew the brain could change. And she had a lot of top doctors on her side. Um, and, and what she ended up doing was creating this amazing program rooted in very strong uh, neuroscience research and literature and her first patient was herself. Oh, really? And she changed her own brain. And I mean, she's unreal. She's a force, man. And she's just humble. She's a servant leader. She's just a good human being. So she was in Toronto getting trained. Uh, Howard Eaton started a school in Vancouver that was really innovative. And that faced its own resistance. And I thought, maybe I'll be the PE teacher, right? <laughs> like, maybe I'll do that. I finished my you know degree in physical education, recreation at, at U of A. And... Um, you know, I just thought to myself, I was cautiously optimistic. Like, if the brain can really change for these people, what does that mean, right? Like, if that's, if that's true, then a lot of the things I thought were true may not be true. So, and that began in 2005. And then, so I became a teacher there. Sorry, you had a question. No, 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 please carry on. So that began, began in 05 and then and ultimately ended up being the, the vice principal and then the principal of the school. Um, and... Um, Really enjoyed it. It was fascinating. Uh, and then over the, and very challenging, but re remarkable families, remarkable students, remarkable uh, leaders, remarkable mentors all the way through that journey. Uh, but over the years, we got some medical legal referrals for people with brain injury uh, that were struggling with these cognitive functions. And I pulled up Google. I'm like, well, surely you don't know how to work Google. Let me, let me find you a hospital near you that you could go to where they could give you cognitive rehab. And what I learned was that that term cognitive rehab is used generally, but a lot of the restorative cognitive rehab or neuroplastic cognitive rehab is oftentimes not deployed in a way that's very well organized. Therefore, a lot of people actually don't get that opportunity earlier on. And therefore, in many cases, they're left with these persisting symptoms and then the comorbidities stack up. So going back to your educational journey, as you've been exposed to this, you've got some of these children that are obviously having you know challenges in their own way. 
we, when we were younger, were were told that, you know, for example, brain injury, once the neurons are gone, that's it, they're done. You know, once you're paralyzed, that's it, you'll never walk again. Um, what was what was the kind of journey that you took? What were some of the things that you were seeing as you were parallel learning that you realized with your own eyes, okay, this neuroplasticity is a thing? I'm still learning. Uh, I'm learning every day. Uh, what I learned, here's something that blew my mind. So one of the students that came to the school was from California. And his family called and said, my son had a brain injury at birth. And his right prefrontal cortex, that's where a lot of kind of emotional control is sort of housed in there a little bit. And, and some of the visual stuff, uh, visual recognition sort of stuff, those were slightly damaged at, at birth. So this the, this individual, this child was given a very good report by, um, by a medical professional that stated this part of the brain has been damaged, which is problematic. This is done with good intentions, I believe. Okay, I, I, I believe it's based on the data they had. This is going to be problematic for this individual. So we're going to want to make sure he has support for most of the rest of his time because of these injuries. So that was very early on in his life. He worked with a speech pathologist. They're remarkable humans. These are frontline neuroplasticians. This um, individual provided programming to him that helped him to function at a higher level than his report would have indicated. So he came to the school and they, this family said, no, we need kind of this sort of a program. And I said, well, it's not really designed for that. <laughs> you know, we're designed for learning disabilities. So then I go to my mentors and I ask them, I'm like, well, let's see if he could engage. And long story short, the kid ended up engaging. And I mean, to the best of my knowledge, he's employed, he's living independently and, and living his life. Um, you know, another, you know, Example was a study that that we did in in collaboration with a great university up here, University of British Columbia, and I remember sitting across the side from some very bright doctors, and those doctors kind of, I was curious because I'd seen in the schools these kids seemingly do better, but I also like science and Howard Eaton, founder of the schools and co-founder of the company I work with, is big into science, and he's like, if we're going to do anything around this, let's do some trials first and see what happens. The data, let the data speak. Let's see what's real and what's not, because we're all biased in this work. We're, we're married to this work. We're biased in some way, shape or form. So what we ended up uh, doing is approaching this group. Um, I had just gone through a, a, a serious medical thing myself. So I'm like one of those moments of, yay, I'm alive kind of thing. Um, so I'm in there talking to these doctors about the research question. And the research question was, um, can people with persisting cognitive symptoms following traumatic brain injury, at that point, it was 24 months, two years, improve their higher order cognitive functions. Is that possible? And a lot of these great docs, super inquisitive, they're like, these people struggle with attention, memory, planning, and organizing. These are executive function type things. And, and, and in people with brain injuries, these things don't, uh, they, they, they don't, they don't change. And then you know what I thought? Are we... What are we doing about it? Like, what if, it made me go back to thinking, not just me, like Howard was instrumental in all this and Barbara, instru they were the lead. They were amazing on all this. Uh, I was just the, the messenger. Uh, and, and what I said was, you know, well, how do we know that? Like, isn't this building built on inquiry? And I'm like, oh, maybe the meeting's over, right? <laughs> isn't the meeting built on inquiry? These are wonderful human beings. I love them all. They're amazing. And they're so inquisitive. They're like, absolutely. Let's see if they show up. Because one of the questions was, these people have brain injuries. They're not going to make it on the west side of Vancouver to show up and do this dosing of a cognitive rehab program. 
But I think we all have to be very, very, very careful. And this is a reminder for myself. This came up just this morning. We have to be very careful of putting our own um, perspectives on what the value of another opportunity might mean to another person. I think we all have to be very careful with that concept because for one person, it might the for a grandmother to have the capacity to play a game of chess with her son for her might be worth a million dollars, but we don't know that we're placing our own biases on that when we do that. And I think we have to be very, that's one thing this work has taught me is that we have to be very careful of our own biases when we go into, into these sorts of conversations and meetings for someone to walk again after returning from deployment, that might mean everything. And we have to be very careful, all of us <laughs> in this work to, asso- to associate our own biases towards that. And so I was armed with that and a lot of conviction in that meeting because I'd seen these families transform. And I was just lucky to witness it. And, and, and I, we put so many obstacles up, like the, the schools Howard started with Barbara, 150 families moved from Australia. Now they love Vancouver anyways, because Whistler's right here, but, but 150 families moved from Australia at the hope for neuroplastic change. And there was no promises either. It's like, there's no promises. It's like, if you can engage in it, then maybe you can, you, you, you can change your brain. Everything was always extremely ethical above, like completely. But I think we just have to be very careful with that. I think it's very, sorry, it's a tangent, but I think it's, I, I think we all have to be very careful with that. Because when I was not well, when I was ill, I was in a clinical trial and the, the, the outcomes that, 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 that I saw didn't look great. And there was an opportunity to potentially get a better outcome. Um, but also maybe change the way things are done for the next people that had that. And maybe inside of me, it was some level of control because I'm a control freak, uh, some level of control that I wanted to have in, in terms of uh, doing something about it. So I thought about brain injury. I thought about back sort of uh, care was, you know, seemingly providing these options. But in brain injury and in brain health, there was just the standard of care was, was nowhere near where that was. But I'm optimistic. I'm super optimistic about the future in brain health and brain injury and mental health because there's that many more assessments coming up now. Well, you touched on the veteran that comes home and all they want to do is is be able to walk again. Um, that community obviously has a huge amount of um, you know micro traumas, concussions, TBIs, etc., because people are trying to kill them and they're trying to you know explode things yeah. that are in the way to get to the bad guys as well. Um, the only thing that I've heard from a lot of these voices so far that is encouraging is some of the the uh, impact psilocybin is having supposedly on neurogenesis. So through right. your eyes, to the veteran community, law enforcement community, combat athletes, people that are listening that actually have structural damage to their brain, what are some of the optimistic um, uh, innovations that and then tools that are yeah. actually um, there available for them if they find the right practitioners. Yeah. Um, so w- when we think about sort of the, the psychedelics 
it's an emerging area of research. I, I don't know very much about it, so I can't even comment on it. Um, all I can say is I think it, 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 from some of the researchers I know, it's interesting. There's, there's some interesting things there, but I think you have to be very careful when you're, when you're doing anything like that and have supervision. And I'm not a doctor. I just have a master's in education. That's all I do. But what, what I think is, is really hopeful is, um, you know, Drucker, right? The, the classic management guy. What gets measured gets managed. So when I talked to some of the clinics, when we were first looking at doing some of this work, it said, you do concussion rehab. I'm like, cool. That's awesome. You do cognitive rehab. Awesome. Um, you do aerobic exercise programming. Radical. You do mindfulness meditation too. You do all of this under one roof. You're, oh, you're a rock star, man. Show me how you do it. How do you measure it all? Oh, we call in the OT when we need the OT. If if James needs an appointment, he comes in and sees him on a Tuesday. And then if he needs the other one, depending on his CPT code and his Medicare Medicaid, then he can maybe get access to the psychologist, maybe. Uh, but we got to do that assessment first. All the while, the clock ticking. The left isn't talking to the right. And so what I'm excited about, super excited about, is the opportunity for... Um, agency for the individual to track and change to some of the behaviors. So everyone should just listen to Atomic Habits. If you don't, not a reader, just listen to that book. It's a great book. And, you know, simple book, the simplest book out there. Uh, it all makes sense. And this stuff, I think we all know, it's just a different voice telling you it. <laughs> and who's done the research, but you are what you do, right? So, so uh, setting up your environment for a better outcome is, is smart. So David Goggins talks about arguing with his shoes before going for a run. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's really funny, but it's also really true because we're all naturally human. We're naturally lazy. We don't want to do the hard thing. But if we want to get better, if we want to improve our brain health, we know that aerobic exercise is very good for that. That is a fact. Now, what's not included in that is starting a practice of aerobic exercise is really hard. For me, it sucked. I hated it. Uh, but it's a fact. So doing that, getting some movement in every day is really good for you. As long as it's safe, right. For, for you within what you can do. Some people we've worked with who have spinal cord injury, hand bikes, but what you need to understand for the listeners is that, um, Dr. John Rady wrote a really awesome book. He's another person that should be on your show. If he hasn't, maybe he's already been on. He's awesome. Uh, so he's to my mind, one of the first, um, uh, psychiatrist to write a prescription for an attention disorder of aerobic exercise. Oh, really? Think about that, right? So that's pretty cool. And that's pretty innovative. And he's like, he's a rock star. He's really cool. Um, so that's, that's one thing is, is move a little, right? Build it into your day. And a dosing that, that can, that can release this brain drive neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle growth for the brain, uh, which could get you the earned dopamine, <laughs> earned dopamine okay not free uh so you earn that you get that feel good feeling because you earned it and then serotonin as well all good for the brain okay then um you know do some cognitive training cognitive training like i'm biased though right but i i like this sort of brain x program but there's there's uh, there's other programs out there that are also really good that can help you shape and change your own brain that's pretty exciting that's a pretty optimistic opportunity and what's interesting about that is that that's also earned there's a, a James Durham is a brain injury survivor who does a lot of work. He runs a podcast as well as a really neat guy. And his whole thing, one of his slides that I loved, it's, it's everywhere, but 
there's there's no elevator to success. And I, I would say there's no elevator to habitual change either. You have to take the stairs. And, and I think that's very true because if you're looking to be that more, uh, if you want to be the better contributor to, to society, um, you've got to do the work and make the mistakes along the way to learn how to do it a little bit better. And, and you learn that it's inside of you. That's the other thing that's really empowering. And that would be my only sort of concern around that. Uh, so, some of the other sort of silver bullet type um, uh, options is that that may not be reinforcing the behavior that leads to that grit and resilience that leads to the improved quality of life. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it really does. And if that ends up being a tool, that's something you can supplement as you're doing things, then phenomenal. But it's, you know, it's like you know, the psychiatric meds that are just covering the actual thing beneath the thing, the thing that's actually the trauma. You know, if you're just layering all these um, these medications over it, you're never getting to the root cause, the kind of the pee under the mattress, as they say. Right. But in some cases, we're enabling the person just to function through the day, right? And sometimes that's what needs to be done, right? Sometimes. Uh, so I'm not beating them up on that. I'm just saying that maybe if you dug a little bit deeper to what the issue was, then if the person, the, the exciting part is if the person with some guidance can solve that themselves, then one might think, well, if I could do that, maybe I could do this, right? And that's the work of Carol Dweck that I think is so exciting, right? The growth mindset work, I think it's fascinating. And it's really cool. And it's not easy, it's hard, but it's it's cool. Yeah, well, we'll get into why hard is good as well. You know, I mean, there's, there's a reason yeah. that, <laughs> that things take work. Just t touching on that brain X for a second, um, when we look at the physicality or lack thereof of a lot of older people in the US, for example, there's, you know, clearly going to be a, a parallel journey with the brain health as well. And I've heard people talk right. about, you know, still playing an instrument, learning another language, all these things that keep the brain expanding. And even in, in my profession, you know, we take some of these exams, but these shifts are, you know, unending and, and there's absolutely a critical thinking element to some of these calls. But yeah. these men and women are so exhausted. We're having to study, you know, textbooks once in a while. We lose the capacity to learn. I, I told people like when I was on shift, I found it hard to read because I was just so tired. I know reading is good right. for you, but I can't like I'd start reading the page and my mind would go off somewhere else. So talk to me about that, you know, for people, whether they're first responders or civilians, what should people be doing, you know, on a kind of daily type business to, to maintain that cognitive health as well? Well, so, I mean, there's some really, really good resources out there. Um, and there's some really, again, I hate to do it, but there's some good books out there on it too. Um, you know, what, what, and I'm biased again on this, but this is why we've created this Bears platform is to try to align some of what's best in class and backed by research to help you to become the best you. And when I think about the first responder community, this is a group, this is a pretty unique group of people, right? You have to realize that you're kind of uh, anomalies. So like just acknowledge that a bit um, in, in a lot of really good ways but also maybe some not as good ways because it's hard to have a level of balance sometimes when you just need to be so on and so focused when you're at that call. Um, so, uh, you, you know, I, I think sleep is really, really important for you uh, uh, for this population. Maybe you need to revisit how they're planning some of these shifts. Well, one of my family members is a, is a fireman and we were just talking about this um, because the brain needs sleep. 
it requires it. It's not like a want, it's a need. Um, that's when the brain heals, right? It's, it's restoring itself while we're sleeping. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you're again, the movement, the, the body needs that. What's another, Hey, Jay, number one cause of death. I think I, I say this all the time, but what is it? Number one cause of death? Yeah. In my profession, supposedly according to statistics is actually suicide, but outside of that it's cancer and then heart disease. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I asked a really unfair question. You're, you're right. Uh, but it's lack of oxygen, right? Oh. So <laughs> you're being specific. And, and it's super unfair question, but me, but it, I, I heard that said once and I really thought about it and I'm like, wow. So if you're exercising and if you're getting the blood through your lymphatic system into your brain, you're oxygenating. And that's really interesting. Like I found that really interesting. And when I had the opportunity to tour around and see some really smart people, and I was all, I'd always try to just stay in my lane to not ask a stupid question because <laughs> they're still in my mind on the old football guy. So I'm kind of like, what's that board up there? Like, because all these different sort of neuro uh, labs at the universities, it tended to be these boards. I'm like, what is this? Like everything else kind of scattered. And these are really hardworking people. Most of them had running boards. I'm like, well, why are you guys all runners? Like, what's that about? And then I looked at some of the research. I'm like, oh, I should probably start running. <laughs> like, like it, it, it's a pretty good ROI for a half an hour uh, of getting uh, the blood moving. So I think movement and exercise and HIIT training is very good. It's very good as a mental health strategy as well. Uh, so I think that's that's something. And I and I think I mean I could be totally wrong here, but I think in your community, many are quite active, right? Yeah, no, they are, and this is the problem: is that. All of them, I would argue, are active when we first walk through the front door of a first responder profession. Some maintain their activity and stay in great shape. There's a middle ground that struggle a little bit. There's there's a small percentage that don't care and, you know, would probably barely fit when they walk through the door. But that middle ground, it's that tug of war between wanting to be the same shape that they were when they entered the profession, but the environment is set us set us does set us up, excuse me, for um, for failure so when you look at the impact of the lack of sleep we'll talk about the you know the the impact on the mind in a second but hormonally it destroys your home hormones it's, you know you you are not having the same level of testosterone and, and estrogen and some right. of these other ones so yeah. you're getting more fatigued you're craving some of the shittier foods and caffeine you're probably taking alcohol in your days off to wind down so then you can try and get some sleep and then come back even though your sleep is shit when you drink. So they're stuck in this vicious circle. So the most motivated train despite that, the middle people tend to see a kind of decline. And there's this kind of, again, that almost that like Uncle Rico thing like, oh man, in, in fire academy days, I was in great hey. shape. you know. So to be fair to my brothers and sisters in uniform, it's not a solely ownership thing. You can't just suddenly get up at 4.30 in the morning and eat salad and everything will be great. The way, as you touched on, the way we do our shifts at the moment. What? You can't? Hold on. I, cancel the play. <laughs> okay, I can't. Okay. No. No, you're, keep going. You're so right. You're so right. Well, I was just going to say, so the way we're doing it is is beating them down. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've went on a monologue. I've even forgotten what the, the original question was. No, no, <laughs> I apologize. No, no, no. no. no it's, it's about the, 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 what I had asked is in your community, you were relatively active, but some uh, in the middle uh, may start that way and then start to uh, cascade down the other way um, because of uh, the realities of the job and and uh, and life. So here's what I think. The, and again, another individual I met who would be cool on your show 
Um, Martin Parnell. Okay, this guy. I met him. I was speaking at a conference in Kelowna, BC. Beautiful, beautiful place right on the lake. Okay, really nice. And I'm speaking at this conference and I'm just talking about some of the research that's been done about some of the hope for neuroplasticity and brain injury. And uh, after the, my talk, this guy comes up to me, another nice bald man like me, got this British accent. He's like, Mark, you did a really wonderful job. What a great, I'm like, okay. And he's up next. And and the first slide is is him in like a coma. I'm like, this is like, this took a turn. <laughs> and uh, And he's like, that was me. You know, I had a massive stroke, multiple heart attacks. Um, you know, and I was doing my rehabilitation. I was a former executive. I was retired and, um, I started, I just started to run and I'm like, well, why would he's like, I just, it, it was part of the cardiac rehab program, you know, do a little bit of the running, but he's in his like late fifties, right? So he's not a young guy. And, uh, and he just starts this practice of running. Uh, and, and he starts to feel a little bit better in doing it. And then he gets a bit of an name, gets, so runs his first marathon, says, just starts running, lost weight, feels better, feels healthier, feels relatively balanced. And then he hears about, this is where it ties into some of the, the community, he hears about um, the story of this, of this girl in Afghanistan getting in trouble from the Taliban for wanting to run. And he's like, well, that's wrong. So he tells his wife, his wife said, Oh God, here we go. He's like, we're going to do the first women's marathon in Afghanistan. And we're going to film it. And we're going to call it the secret marathon. And we're going to show that it's possible. We're going to do this. And his wife's like, Oh God, I think Martin actually want, might want to do this. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but Martin's that guy. Because at this point, he's in damn good shape. He's running all the time and he's inspiring people like crazy. He's a huge inspiration in my life. Huge. He got a documentary out there called The Ageless, Ageless Athlete. He's still running all the time. And you can sign up for these secret 3Ks. I do it every year. It's really cool. It's super inspiring because it, it's a reminder of the agency to have an action bias. Here's Martin. He just reads this paper and says, I'm going to run it. And he did it. And they filmed it. And there's so much risk. But but he's like, the fact that that girl is not allowed to run is wrong. Why shouldn't that girl get the chance to run? Running's beautiful. He's just like, I learned it too late. <laughs> so wouldn't that be cool if, if more people could, could understand the beauty of this and how it could bring community together? So this guy, aerobic exercise, building that in can give you a totally different perspective. Because I didn't think I could run 5K, let alone a half marathon. But all that was was a thought. That wasn't reality because I hadn't really tried. So, you know, like doing that is a really, the way I look at it, another guy, really brilliant guy, Mark Stevenson, and I think he's out at Brigham and Women's in Boston. He's a trainer and he does a lot of work in the first responder community. He's a really great man. And uh, his whole thing is about the bank account. It's about just debits and the, it, 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 you know, credits and debits, right? Deposits, withdrawals. And uh, he's like, it, the way I look at running for me, I'm no stellar runner. I just do it as a practice um, is investment. So if I ate pizza last night and, you know, was an idiot, uh, didn't do add ice cream, whatever. I better bring it because I owe it to myself. If I actually believe in myself, I could say I'm going to do it, but I got to look myself in the freaking mirror and say, hey, did I do, did I do what I thought was right? Did I do my best? And I got to try. 
and I'm going to make mistakes and I got to forgive myself, but I'm going to try. So that aerobic or hit exercise, you can do this in a way that works for you. Don't compare yourself to the Instagram stuff. That's not real, right? Those are filters. It's fake. <laughs> but you can compare yourself to yourself yesterday. You can do that and you can measure it. Like for people who actually bought in and really stuck to their Fitbits, I bet you they're living pretty good lives right now. If you actually stuck with it, I bet you're doing pretty good. But for the people, we're all human and we're going to screw up. Like the first few times I put left it in the door too. Uh, but like, if you're going to stick with it, if you're really serious about it, there's ways to do it. And if you become a part of the community, oh man, like talk about a good social media platform, try Strava. Hey, my one buddy who's like a monster on the bike now, he started riding his bike and during the pandemic because of the stress and everything, he figured he'd try it. I mean, he calls Strava uh, Facebook for, for, for people who do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like, uh, you know, and I think that's pretty cool. And I think you would find this is one of the things that I would love to do with the first responder community, because I. I feel a sense of responsibility. You're taking care of everybody else. You're, you're constantly taking care of everybody. Else. And oftentimes it's completely thankless. You know, people won't get out of the way of you and your ambulance when you're coming to go save a life. But, you know, building in what, what, what our what our group has done is we just built in a sequence of, of, you know, being able to measure this for yourself and giving the agency back over to departments, to first responders, to whomever, so that they can just have a system. Should you choose to engage with it? It's possible. You can just compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Pre-shift, do a little bit of cognitive work. You're going to have to do some decision-making. When you show up to that call, you're going to, especially the captains, they're going to have to make a decision really fast. They're going to have to process all the visual intel they're going to have to reason through it quickly. They're going to have to deploy the appropriate resources, do a risk analysis, delegate, you know, and they're going to have to do that in seconds. So I want the first responder that has that um, a cognitive capacity. And I think the individual wants that opportunity as well. So let's expand on that. I want to get to the detrimental side of sleep deprivation and decision making and the long term, you know, issues as well. But before we do expand on the tools that you have for people out there listening. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, our organization, we're a Vancouver based organization. And what we did is we learned that people who have cognitive dis impairment, cognitive dysfunction, um, oftentimes have um, persisting uh, cognitive challenges. For some people, when we learned early on, those are people with learning disabilities. For some people, they just have may have slower processing speed. Um, for other people, they may not be able to to conduct abstract reasoning very well. Well, these all of these things can be trained, can be trained up. We just assumed many of us had kind of given up, saying, "Well, that's not something we can train up." That's not true. It's fundamentally not true. So, you know, we we could. One of the things I think about is like uh, cognitive priming. So I I thought it'd be pretty interesting, like pre shift. You do a little bit of cognitive stimulation pre-shift, so you're more prepared cognitively for that call. And you also have the agency internally, knowing that it's not some sort of uh, nootropic pill that one had to take to enable them the, to, to be ready for it. Not that that's totally bad, but if you do something behaviorally on top of that, that's surely going to be better. So that's one thing that's computer-based that people could just you know log into pre-shift do some of this work at whatever dosing half an hour would be perfect, but for some, they may not have that time. I think that's really, really exciting. Very exciting. In fact, it's something I'm working with right now. One of the people who works in the department right now is just looking at that technology because he sees this unmet need. 
So I think that's a cool opportunity. I think tracking your movement throughout the day, you could just, I mean, if you're wearing the watch, you know, you can, they do a really good job measuring that. Uh, and remember, it's not about it being the best consumer or commercial grade necessarily. Remember, it's it's comparing your activity to yourself yesterday in relation to what your goals might be for the month. That's it. It's an N of one, as they would call in science. Um, and then on the sleep side, I defer to the really smart people that I know. But yeah, lack of sleep will impact decision making. Like it's just it's just true. <laughs> um, so you 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 need to account for that. You need to try to account for that. Um, you know, and that's where I think, you know, one of the individuals, and I think I may have introduced you to him, Pat Byrne, um, wonderful guy. He knows this inside and out from top performers to industrial health and everything in between. And I think for, for me, where I stand is the integration of these domains, I think is very important. I go back to the clinic where I, I saw advertised all these different services thinking, wonderful, a person could go in and get these services and, and quickly in a way that's integrated, blended into Vitamix, give me what I need. Nope. In most cases, that's not the case. Well, what happens is the individual is left to try to figure out what they're going to be able to do in those four hours that they have in between work and picking up the kids and preparing lunches and trying to do some working out. How do I do that? It, it, I see why people give up. Well, firstly, it's, it's very, very, very encouraging that there are tools that we can affect our cognition the same way as you talked about, you know, putting on sneakers and running for 30 minutes is going to affect your cardiovascular system. One example, I just had a guy, an amazing guy, Ken Corigliano, um, he was, he challenged, excuse me, he struggled when he was uh, young academically. Um, he joined the Air Force, ended up deploying. When he came back, he was in the ROTC program. He actually failed the PT test and got, you know, basically was threatened to be thrown out. There was a lawsuit to recoup the money. I mean, it was, uh, it was terrible. But he then shifted his mindset. Um, and I think his PT record still stands to this day. So he went from failing to setting the record that's unbeaten after, I mean, I think 10 years or something crazy like that. But then he becomes such an amazing athlete. He becomes a triathlete. He gets nailed on his bike, massive TBI. I mean, a long road to recovery, but he ends up with synesthesia. So now he can smell and taste, you know, numbers and, and you know, an, an equation will either make sense and it will taste good or it won't and it doesn't and he'll question it. Now he's the the uh, Air Force's AI guy, like one of you know, the absolute boffins. So you talk about firstly belief, self-belief, you know, and what you're told as a child coupled with all these things. I mean, he takes, you know, he's dove into neuroscience, so he's probably using a lot of tools that we're talking about. Not only did he change the way he thinks, and now you know he lectures on quantum physics and all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. But then applying that mentality to his physicality as well. So, I mean, I thought that was such an amazing episode to really see the massive shift that you can make, not just mindset like, you know, a, a mantra in the morning, but actually putting in the work to initially overcome a TBI and then far surpass the performance that you ever had prior wonderful like that that's the guy right there and there's many kens out there that's the thing they those are our teachers everybody those are our teachers the lived experience the the grind the focus but also the internal understanding of the north star where am i trying to get to and then also understanding that you know what you know what i've learned and this is a big 
um, thing for your audience. This is where I need help. A lot of people want to help. A lot of people want to be part of something that could really change the way things are done. And then sometimes I forget that. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm classically Canadian, right? Like, oh, oh sorry. Like, uh, you know, just totally that way. But, you know, a lot of people want to be a part of changing things, especially if it's impacted them or is currently impacting them. And they could be a part of somehow potentially changing the way things are done. There's a lot of power in that. And and I think that, I think that would be my sort of, um, my ask of, of any listeners here, if you wanted to be a part of changing the way some of these things are being, this is how you and I are connected, right? Like, I don't want to see people do that. I don't want to see that. Uh, I want to see people um, understand that, you know what? You could get 5,000 steps in today. You could actually probably do it. Maybe you could get 3,000. Maybe you could get 2,000. And maybe in a week, you could get 1,500. Holy crap. And how do you feel when you do that? You go, damn, man. Like, I, I walked that far. I did that. And you know what? I felt damn good about it, too. And I'm not going to apologize. And, and I think, and then, and then you start thinking, holy smokes. Maybe, you know what? Maybe right now I do need some help. Holy smokes, I'm becoming, you know what? I need to talk about that thing. I got to talk about that thing. Because you know what? I can walk. I have a guy who can walk. I'm actually a guy who can walk now. I'm not the guy. I'm not as fit as I was when I was 22 and enrolled. But I'm I'm 48 and I'm doing my best and I'm starting to walk again. And I'm starting to do it for me. And I'm not even going to apologize about it. I think that's awesome. Like, I think that's exciting. And the, and the Kens of the world, that's the message we need people hearing. But the problem that I see out there is we're lacking the system. Because not everybody's Ken. <laughs> Ken's a superstar right? That like, that's a rock star. Uh, I'm more the average guy. So, you, you know, like I would need a little bit of a system to help me to engage in it and then measure my, and track my progress and understand that the first little bit's going to be really hard because <laughs> changing behavior, atomic habits is going to be extremely hard, but step-by-step step, we'll get there, get clear on your goals and you can do this. And, and that's where I need help. Like, like with our organization, we want to help more people, you know, whether they're, they're in hospital systems, whether they're, you know, first responders, whether they're uh, people that are aging. You know, we've worked with people with the aging brain and they're saying, you know, what they, you know what they say? What do they say? Right. Where do you go? You're aging. Take it slow. Sleep lots. Right. Take it slow. OK, well, what ex what accelerates aging? <laughs> Everything we're doing. Right. So what does Martin part? What does Martin part? I'll say. Nope, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to run with purpose. And I'm going to run as a servant leader. And with each step, I'm helping girls in Afghanistan. I'm helping equality. That's cool. And it's possible for our own little, for our own little um, Afghanistan, for our own little, whatever it might be, to play with the kid again, to play on the ground with our grandkids again. You know, like that maybe that's our step. And, you know, I, I have some regret in my life with family members who struggled with some of these things. And I tried to push <laughs> to get them to move a little bit more. And I couldn't I couldn't do it. I forgive myself because ultimately it's inside of us. But if we can help people by telling the stories of the Kens, by telling the stories of the Martins, by telling the stories of the of the of the industrial athlete that faced faced the challenges and, and got through it and then sharing that. Matt Johnston is one person I want to connect you with, too. He's. I don't know if I've talked with you about him, but he's unreal. Um, 
he's a, uh, a first responder fireman, but a trained psychologist. And so he left his clinical psychology practice to join um, the fire department. And then he realized the challenge that you've uncovered so incredibly well, uh, the mental health challenges inside of some of these departments and, and the opportunity to help more people. And he's educating like crazy right now. And I'm so proud of what he's doing because he's, he's, he's helping people. This is the important part that you do so well is you're helping people to change their own lives. And there is the agency. That's the agency right there. You're, you're, you're providing the, the testimony and, and the resources to help people to understand where they might be at so that they can then change their own lives. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, I mean, thank you, but this is this, you're part of this, you know, I mean, this is amazing community. Um, and I think the world of the, the, the storytelling element that has clearly been passed down for generations in pretty much every ancient civilization since the dawn of man that we lost a little bit is what's happening here. I mean, we've, you know, we, you and I are talking and we're getting into neuroscience a little bit, but you're also telling these anecdotes, you know, and it's in a Martin story and some of these other people that you talked about, that is what resonates pe with people. And then you add the tools that people are bringing these solutions to the problems. Like, for example, some of the things that you're offering to improve our cognition this is what I love about this whole thing. You know, this 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 community, because it is a community, um, is all these minds coming together, all these guests coming on for free. You know, I've been asked for, for money on a few and they haven't come on the show because <laughs> I'm not I'm not a wealthy man. So everyone else has come on, you know, is is donating their knowledge, their their life story, whatever it is, to bring solutions to the problem. So um, you know, being the conduit, being the person that connect, the person who needs the help with the person who has the, the, the solution to that. It's been amazing watching this over the last seven years. It's so cool, man. And you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, I can tell. And, uh, and your, your purpose is so pure. So it's, it's, it's an excellent thing. And, and I've learned, I've been fortunate to be, to be surrounded by some really interesting people and, and I just want to lift them up so that their impact can go and help more people that really need it, you know? And, and ultimately for me, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's helping people to understand that change is always possible and your thoughts will direct your actions oftentimes. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I really like, you know, the, the work of um, Stephen Pressfield, right. That, you know, be unbelievable, you know, the, the whole concept of the resistance being self-imposed, that was really a mind blower for me. I'd heard about his work for years and I was like, wow, this is so true and so prevalent for me and for, I'm sure all of us, you know, that the resistance can be self-imposed and, uh, and, and it's something I have to come back to and remind myself of, <laughs> right? Because if we, if we don't believe it's possible, then of course it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in some cases, that might be an out, right? In some cases, that might be an out. Absolutely. Well, that's how I feel even with, with the shift. So you touched on this. You know, To me, the gold standard in the fire service should be at least 24-72, meaning you work a full 24, because I don't think there's a way of getting around that, particularly in the fire service. We have so much to check out. We have so much training, all these things. I just don't think you could do it easily in a 12-hour shift so you have a 24-hour you have a place to sleep between calls you know you're you're getting some rest but then you give them enough time in between these shifts to actually recover but 
we believe our own lie, you know, and we're like, oh, that'll never happen. Well, no, it won't because you just said it will never happen. Like you said, you have to ask the question, why is the person bagging my groceries working 40 hours a week and the person who wakes up at three in the morning drives lights and sirens to a fire, crawls through a bedroom window, pulls out a child and then works a pediatric code on that child working 56 hours plus a week. You know what I mean? We, we've we've told ourselves this myth for so long, we believe our own lies. So we as a profession have to take a step back and advocate for ourselves and the people we serve because not only will changing the shifts positively affect our longevity, it will actually, as you touched on earlier, it will improve our cognition, therefore our ability to serve the people that, that we protect in our communities. Yes, uh, and and right there, like so, I'm sure in your your audience, you have many people that want to help make that happen. So let's just do it. Pilot it. That's how things change. Just do it. Like uh, I don't know if you saw the new Air movie, the Michael Jordan shoe movie. It's really, I mean, it's very Hollywood, but um, the the whole thing is really interesting. You, you know, the the way it was. It's a it's a story of true innovation. Um, that you know, this Jordan guy was seemingly different and quite interesting and. Uh, but he didn't fit in with how they do business and doesn't work. It doesn't fit the model. And, and, and the one guy, um, Matt Damon's character had to have the courage to say, we just have to do this. Like, this is what we're, otherwise I'm not here. His character's name was Sonny. And, and then Jordan's mom said, yeah, we'll, 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 work, we'll work with you guys, but hundred percentage of revenue for every shoe. And then he's like, well, now there's no way this, this can't work. You know, so the Matt Damon character is like, well, we almost did it. He's going to have a great career. It's almost going to work. It's almost almost there. And Matt Damon, the resistance got him in that moment. And then Matt Damon goes to Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck. And Phil Knight goes, we built this company taking risks. Just do it. Go close the deal. Without that, when you think about those, and that's a silly thing because it's a shoe, but like, it, it, I think it, I think it translates. You know, had, had we not had Barbara Aerosmith Young not created this remarkable program, a lot of kids, a lot of adults today wouldn't have been employed, wouldn't have been parents, maybe some of them wouldn't have been alive, because she decided to treat her own cognition with her own program. So when we think about the shift thing. I'm sure you have so many people out there that have that that want to make this change happen. Just it's that first mover thing that's hard, right? It's taking that first step because you feel so alone and naked. But I think you'd be alarmed at how many people are in that line right beside you. And then you could the, the beauty of this is you can study it. That's the that's the exciting part is you can really look at the data, dig deep into the data, and not be married to what you believe the results should be. That's the hard part. For all, all of us that want to control things, you have to just let the be clear on what you're the question you're asking, and then be clear on the protocols of measurement, and be clear on the dosing, and then let the data speak because it it will likely not be what you think. That's the hard part, you know. Uh, but it's good; it will move the field forward. It will ultimately help those amazing humans that are doing this work live a better life, and and that's that's the point, right? Absolutely. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they're fascinated now. Where can they find access to the tools that you offer? Yeah, I mean, you can just go to our website. I mean, we're just a small organization. We're looking to grow. 
Um, it's www.abiwellness.com as an acquired brain injury wellness. We kind of, we work with, um, you know, everything from kind of private clinics um, to we're working towards getting into the performance athlete and um, industrial athlete space. So if there are, you know, organizations that are interested in that sort of thing and providing this sort of a service to, to, to their employees and staff, you know, you know, no promises. It may work. It may not, but give us a call. We want to help. Uh, even if there's resources we can pass along, you know, we can do that. And, uh, you know, James, you always know how to get a hold of me. So <laughs> we're good, but you can, yeah, you can find us online there. And, um, you know, there's a toll free number you can call too, if you're more of a phone person and that's one 833 And then you can just reach out to us through the website. Beautiful. And then what about the Brain Mastery Podcast? Where can people can find that? Yeah, just Google it. And you see my smiling, uh, sm- smiling uh, mug there with a, with a coffee mug. Just go to, uh, just, uh, go to uh, Spotify. Uh, you can go wherever you get your podcasts. We're on pretty much all of them. Just type in Brain Mastery Podcast. You did an amazing episode on the work you're doing. So thank you for that. We had a remarkable TBI survivor on in a recent episode, uh, named Rob that, that told an absolutely remarkable story of recovery and servant leadership. And, uh, you know, anyone interested in that kind of space of just brain health, uh, you know, do check out the podcast, uh, subscribe and download again. I do it just uh, labor of love, uh, wanting to help, uh, tell these amazing stories of people that are changing the world in their own way. Beautiful. We'll have to listen to Rob's one then. So thank you. It's, it's actually, it's scary. We're, we're having seemingly a high prevalence of strokes with you know men our age men is specifically that i know um and so now there's probably some people listening that are you know recovering from that that are probably looking to improve cognition try and work on some of the neuroplasticity on that side too yeah so here's the thing for, for if that's the person hearing this message right now don't give up don't you and you may not like the the, the remember that i choose to believe we're in a world where people are doing the best with what they've got, right? But but there's a good Brene Brown. It's not Brene Brown's originally, but she recently used it. Is choose to uh, listen to the person that's been in the arena. Okay, so if they're working in the same service as you, if they have lived experience, that opinion may be more meaningful than the other one. So don't you give up. You know, those are the people I want to hear from. If that they're struggling now, not that we could necessarily uh, help you, but we'll we'll work tirelessly to connect you with people that might be able to help you somewhat. Right? Don't you give up? If if if, if you have a goal, there's a Canadian hero out here, hero in my life. He's given so much to the world. This kid, Terry Fox. I don't know if you've ever heard the name for our American listeners. This guy's a beauty. That that's a Canadian term for awesome, and. This kid was diagnosed with cancer at like 19, I believe, something like that. He was at Simon Fraser University, and he was a basketball player. And he's like, he's mad, right? He's pissed about this whole thing. And he's like, we need to change this, man. Like, there wasn't a lot of resources. There wasn't a lot. And he's like, we're just going to, you know what? We're going to raise awareness for childhood cancer. I'm just going to run across Canada. Uh-huh. Brother gets in the car, buddy gets in the, this van. And they just start, he starts running across Canada. Oh, by the way. On one leg. Yeah, he had his other leg amputated. <laughs> and uh, that's just the story of, you know, resilience and what he's done since sadly we lost him. But he's an absolute hero. And he's an it totally, he was a totally introverted guy, quiet. He's just pissed about cancer. He's like, this needs to change. In my lifetime, I'm going to do what I can with the time I have to do this, to do something about this. 
this run happens annually around Canada. He's raised hundreds of millions of dollars and um, he's helped to cure the fund that cures for, for tons of uh, cancer. So, you know, the agency's there for a lot of us in our own way. Terry's a very extreme example, but you know, um, there's, there's ways around it because it builds a team, right? That's the thing. So, yeah, actually Terry's name came up. I've got a, a friend, Sashi Lati, who is a Canadian law enforcement officer and he uh, is going to be running across Canada. And I can actually see Terry's statue in my mind. So I know exactly who you're talking about. Oh, Hunter, that guy's, that, send me his information if you don't mind. I want to support him. I think it's awesome. And I mean, that's the thing. I really want to help, you know, the police, the um, the fire departments. Um, heck, even the, my mind goes to helping the insurers to find access for this because it, it's got to make sense for them. But if there's a way that, that we could play a small role in helping them, uh, I'm in because they're, everybody's, everybody's running their own little race. Right. And, and it's your race. So it, you, you get to pick and, um, you know, just do the best you can with what you got and utilize the resources that you've got. You've got an amazing community with James here. Reach out to him. He's the kind of guy that would get back to you too. Oh, I'd hope I didn't just, <laughs> Never, you, I, I just ignore everyone's messages. I delete them. He, I'm a horrible person. He's just, kind of, <laughs> he's just kind of guy, man. Like they're rare, but they're, you know, we can all start to start to strive more towards that. You inspired me after I first met you, man. I'm like, your mission, you left this this job because you were tired of seeing what you saw. So you had to be the change you wanted to see. So you started this thing out of your house, probably, in your own way. And I think it's awesome. And I think we can all learn from that. Well, thank you. I mean, this is the thing. I'm this network is now other people that wanna, you know, wanna be the change, you know. So all I did was you know, again, definitely a brave, a brave kind of move to go away from the safety and security of the benefits of the fire service. But ultimately, you know, it wasn't a decision that was in my hands. It was, you know, after X amount of funerals, it was kind of like Terry. I'm like, I'm sick and tired of this. So, and I think a lot of, a lot of people that have come on the show are the same in their own realm. You know, you are with, with your realm. So. I'm sure people listening would love to kind of connect with you specifically. So are there any places on, on social media that you like to interact? LinkedIn, probably. You can just find me there. Uh, Mark Watson, ABI Wellness. That's probably the best place to find me. Uh, I don't do Twitter. <laughs> um, and uh, But that that would be the best place to find me. And then honestly, emailing me is the easiest way. Just mwatson at abiwellness.com. And I'll respond within 24 hours. Uh, you know, the, the, if it's a referral, you need someone needs help, or if we could help with some of your kind of health programs or wanted to look at that, we'd love to hear from you. Beautiful. Well, Mark, I want to say thank you. We could have talked for hours more, but um, we'll have to do a part two down the road and revisit some of the other areas. But uh, you know, again, firstly, thank you for for connecting with me and bringing me on the podcast. And I'm so glad we got to kind of turn the microphones around. Um, you know, that you've you've given us hope. You know, hope whether it's someone who has a TBI or a stroke and is actually trying to change the the anatomy and physiology of some of the damage within their in their brain and or simply cognition. So many of us have the brain fog and, you know, some of the the diminished um, cognition through our service. Yet we are the ones that people are hoping we're going to be on our absolute A game when the when the tones go off so i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and bringing some of these amazing resources to the conversation uh, it's my pleasure uh and um yeah just uh, keep keep listening keep doing the work you're doing 
Uh, everybody just do the best you can with what you got and uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. <laughs>